Hello and welcome back. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by the good doctors Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. In this somewhat delayed episode, we've decided it's been a little while since we discussed our own personal work in exoplanetary science. Who are we? Why are we? Are we the same people studying the same things as when we started Exocast way back in 2016? How, if all, do we balance work, life, and distant extrasolar worlds? So let's interview ourselves for a change and catch up a little bit on what the three of us have been up to in order to introduce ourselves to new listeners and reintroduce ourselves to our regulars. We know you're out there and we appreciate your support. So how about a brief one-sentence reintroduction to use as a, as a springboard for the conversation? And I think, Hugh, I shall put you on the spot and ask you to kick things off. Okay, sure. So I guess my science is taking data from space-based transit surveys, like TESS, and then searching for confirming and characterizing planets at longer periods than traditionally are found with uh, with those missions. Hannah? So, okay, on that same level, I take the planets that people have found and I try to understand if they have an atmosphere and if they do, what is their atmosphere made of and how does it respond to its environment i think <laughs> andrew in a very similar way Hannah. i think i do a, a similar a similar kind of approach but maybe for the smaller worlds so broadly um exoplanet climatology so once hugh has found the planets and hannah's figured out what they're made out of i might come in with uh, an earth-based model uh, observations lessons that we've learned from the earth a comparative planetology approach to to figure out if there might be any semblance of habitability, some way of supporting life as we might understand it on these worlds. Now, they're generally not the worlds that Hannah's talking about, big, puffy gas giants, the cool ones that she thinks are cool. <laughs> but we're at the stage where we're approaching being able to to get some useful, generalised information about planetary systems and the way that they operate. Um, when I say systems, I mean the planet as a system, as well as planetary systems, um, from this kind of info. And when Andrew says a sentence, he, he means a paragraph. <laughs> yes, I do. And I'll, I'll regularly we know that. Sure we'll know that. <laughs> it's a complicated topic, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> but that's very, like, top level, right? That's a very broad, that's, that is what we do. But what do we actually do on a, like, the more the day-to-day -day basis? That's kind of like the results, isn't it? Indeed. That's what we get to eventually yeah. once we've done our day job. So, yeah. like, how does that day job actually work? Yeah, the methods, so to speak. Yeah, we've got a nice kind of progression there. So I'm going, going back to Hugh on this one. How do you find and confirm a long period planet? Like, what, is, what does your day look like in terms of the how you deal with your data? I mean, uh, lots of meetings, I'm sure, as, as you guys have too. So part of it is looking for interesting planets that other people have found. So like the teams run in, in NASA on tests, they find some of these planets. Part of it is looking at these the data that comes from these missions myself and running my own code and looking with my own eyes at some of this data to try and find planets that have been missed. So I have, you know, a few times a week I'll, I'll put some time apart to look at light curves and try and figure out what's going on and what planets have been missed. And then kind of figuring out which of those planets is most interesting and, you know, sorting by the ones that, that we really want to look at 
with you know to characterize and to confirm and then for the confirmation and and is is well i mean at the moment i'm working a lot with chaos which is an e european space agency satellite exclusively looking at exoplanets and so we um we put the candidates that we find from tests onto chaos and then we try and find what the period is because often we don't know uh, from the test data if there's only well, one, one thing that TESS is doing is it's observing the sky non-continuously. So it observes mm. for one month uh, in 2020 and then another month or two in, in 2022. And so you might get one transit in 2020 and one transit in 2022, but have no idea which of the 35 possible periods it's actually on. So that's one thing I'm working a lot on is modeling the data and then figuring out what the possible periods are, which ones do we want to prioritize. And then we go after the most likely periods with chaos and basically point it during the times that those transits we think will happen and then we get the data down and we have no idea will this data show a transit or will it be flat it's a, it's a bit like a fruit machine you, you like pull the <laughs> pull the lever some data appears you know shifts around and then you're like is there a transit it's gonna line up is it three cherries and often it's just nothing right it's just a, a lemon there's, there's no there's no <laughs> nothing at all but sometimes you get the you get the period you get to see a nice tr another transit of this you know, a lot of these are super Earths and mini Neptunes we're looking at with with Kelps because those are the ones that Kelps is kind of best at. And so yeah, so, sometimes we get the transit, we get we get to see this planet again for the third potential time, and then we know what the period is, and we can we can then move on to characterizing with something like radial velocities to figure out what the mass is, or even with atmospheres. So so doing what what Hannah does if if we can do that. It's a long period process, right? It takes a while to go from, you know, this is a test candidate potentially because TESS is really doing an all sky survey. So it, it's got that volume that you can look through for these kind of types of planets. Then you've got to go and work out what the possible transits are, where they happen over over how many years worth of time? Like how long do you look for those potential future transits? And then how long does it take to get chaos time and get get the telescope to actually take data? Yeah, I mean the good thing is a lot of it's automized automatic is that is that a word? Automizable? Automated. Automated. Automatable. Where we can well, I mean I've written code that just put the data in and it'll tell you exactly what you need to know out and what the even what down to what the files you need to upload to Kops are so that it can schedule it. That kind of helps, but it is a long process, especially like there's some candidates now where the first transit happened in K2 in 2012, right? Tess got a second transit in 2021. So there's like seven years gap. And so the period could be seven years long. So we might be waiting with Kops for, for another six years until we get actually get a transit with one with this so it's a long time time scale just waiting for okay we have to you know wait for potential periods to come around again i mean typically with tests most of these planets we've been finding are about a month in period so those at least come around quite quite often so we, we don't need to wait for longer than a couple of years to get make sure we get one of those transits and it's the time on chaos so you you work you are a test chaos fellow your job is to work with both of these satellites to search for these planets. Does that give you priority time on Kops, or is there some kind of betting process or kind of like a, there's a certain allocation of time to different people or you you kind of propose for it kind of thing? How does that work? Well, Kops is a bit special in, in terms of ESA missions in that it was mostly bought and made and paid for by Switzerland and their returns on that is to have this 
GTO, this guaranteed time operation, which actually controls most of the time on Chaos. And if you're part of that, which I am, being based in Switzerland and, and being this uh, chess fellow, Chaos chess fellow, that basically means that you get, as long as the target hasn't been taken by the kind of general astronomy community who, who get also get to observe for 20 to 30 percent of chaos time as long as the target hasn't been taken by there then every week i can just add a new target and it could be observed the week afterwards and there's no as long as it fits in the science case that i proposed to the gto a year ago then there's no there's not a long process required basically to get to get my uh, targets onto chaos which is very nice that does sound quite nice actually yes. <laughs> and that sounds I want that, but not with Chaos. No offense. You want it with JWST, I guess. I want it with I want it with Hubble, I want it with JWST. <laughs> Sounds amazing. So that's not how the ERS works then, I guess. That is not how any of these these observatories that no. are considered, you know, these flagship missions work. But Hugh, this does this does raise an interesting question. So from like Maybe more of a of a like a logistical point of view, right? You're you're a postdoc uh, at Bern, right? Which for folks who maybe are not in academia or interested in pursuing careers in academia, is the the bit in between, you know, your, the end of your PhD and maybe some sort of permanent faculty job, which I guess is is still held up as you know the objective right here. Yeah. And you know, Hannah and I have both been postdocs. We've done the done the five year postdoc thing in the US, and that does. You know, there's some there's some work life issues there, of course, but it kind of imposes a bit of a time a time scale, right? My postdocs were two and a half years each, so I had to get stuff done within that that amount of time. Um, so how does that kind of fit into your your chess operations, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I'm quite lucky here in Bern because it was a four year postdoc, two years in MIT, which I did during the pandemic, and I didn't exclusively do in MIT because nobody was there, right? Mm. And then two years after that in Bern, and I even got another almost a year extension so and this is my second postdoc so I'm now more than six years post PhD so I'm getting to the point where I can't like things I can't apply for more postdocs basically because there's always a which I personally find discriminatory there's always a limit yeah I agree I know no you can't you can't apply now you have to be early career and if 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 you don't have a a permanent position by eight years post PhD then you have to leave academia basically I don't think that's true I don't think that's true I know some people who have been 10 11 we just had somebody who's been 12 years post PhD it really is there is a lot of different factors that kind of come into that but it is it gets harder and harder right it does genuinely after about seven or eight years like you said just get harder and harder and harder but it's not necessarily impossible yeah and things have changed maybe you know 20 years ago one might expect a postdoc a single postdoc for three years would be sufficient maybe even before that maybe straight from the phd i don't know if such a if such a transition was ever a thing but it does seem like you know the postdoc inflation um is is getting a little bit greater but i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing um it's maybe how academia is done highly competitive it requires this funnel i guess but it can be difficult it doesn't necessarily fit in with global pandemics and 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 the wider uh, way that people want to live their lives I, I get that i found the nomadic postdoc life very difficult not knowing where i was going to be in in a couple of years time and not really being able to make too many plans uh, beyond beyond plans for work yeah. and you know that influences or at least for me it influenced 
many things, like even subconsciously, like, oh, do I want to buy a new sofa when I know I'm going to be maybe moving in, in six months' time? Is that, is that really necessary? So stuff like that, you know, it, it affects. And with this idea that there's always this pressure, okay, you have this 10-year limit, as Hugh said. Um, and he's right, because, you know, you will see funding proposals, you will see grant proposals that say, you know, early careers, eight years out of PhD, seven years out of PhD. Yeah. Um, that is that is kind of drilled drilled in there. And it, and it promotes this anxiety about this this progression, which oh, definitely. I, I hope will go away in the future because postdocs are the engine of science, right? They are the, I was, I was most productive as a postdoc. It's where you get stuff yeah, done. Exactly, it's where you get stuff like, done. And I've realised now as a lecturer, stuff. and I'm sure hopefully Hannah will agree, I get so little done now because and I really wish I had that same postdoc, not necessarily time, because it's not like you have much more time, but that focus that was that you could dedicate to to the project uh, for a day as opposed to an hour if you can squeeze it in at the end of the day. So I think that there really is a place for things to change a little bit in how we think about this, but maybe that's a, a conversation for another time. <laughs> I, I do feel the more I look at, well, <laughs> the more I look at your work-life balances, the, the more I kind of feel like or you know and and the amount of stuff that you have to do as permanent researchers i feel privileged to still be a postdoc and to still have most of my time for for just doing science right and i'm kind of less i don't want to say it puts me off applying for permanent jobs why not <laughs> i mean why, why not it definitely yeah. It definitely doesn't make me want to jump into a, a professorship. I mean, when we were trying to schedule this, I made the mistake of screenshotting my timetable and sending it and going like, this is the slot. Yeah. This is where you can go. <laughs> a little a little window in, in the lunchtime period on a Wednesday, three weeks from now, which then yeah, I double Yeah, no, I cancelled lunch. So <laughs> completely on me. Lunch. That's why we've had two episodes in the last five months. <laughs> totally on the lecturer side of the, of the studio, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, I've now got, you know, lunch... 45 minutes scheduled in when I can have that scheduled in it's in there because otherwise there won't be a gap in my day I've got meetings like back to back to back and I just go okay I didn't schedule in a bathroom break or I haven't even been able to get up and go fill up my water because for in Bristol I'm in a tower that literally an ivory tower academia it's all true (laughs) (laughs) but the building's old enough that there aren't toilets in many places so I have to go down and along to the other end of the building to go to the women's bathroom so that doesn't take a like a lot of time but it's you know you need a good five minutes to get there and back and it's just like I haven't scheduled that in. It needs scheduling, oh, wow. even f- even a five minute bathroom break. One person is leaving my office. The next person is waiting to come in, and it's just like I can't believe that I have to schedule in bathroom breaks into my day. Well, tell us a little bit about your last couple of years, Hannah. Right, so you and as I said, postdoc in the US, and then you secured a, a position at, at Bristol. Right, so how's it been going? Yeah, I was insanely lucky in my career for a number of different reasons, one of which was timing on the subject that I work on, which is characterizing the atmospheres of these exoplanets using space-based observatories, so using Hubble and preparing for JWST, which was supposed to launch in 2014, and then it was supposed to launch in 2018, and then it was supposed to launch in 2021, at various points in 2021, to be fair. So that kept shifting and shifting, and then it was Christmas Day. And all of that shifting really kind of ended up working for me in a very strange way, but also 
was just like a continuous moving the benchmarks. But I, I was a NASA postdoctoral fellow at Goddard after my PhD. I was the first person from Exeter to get a fellowship in the US and actually trying to work out what that means. And I didn't have an understanding of what NASA is compared to academia, which is in a university environment with students and PhD students and undergrads and classes and things. It's not, it's a mm. workplace. You're in an office and that's you in the office. After the most junior person, you know, there, there, aren't, there aren't undergraduate or master students, no. or PhD students, underneath. yeah. So you generally the most junior person coming in there. You're the bottom of the rung <laughs> and it's all very, very different. Uh, I didn't really understand that if I'm honest. But I was lucky. I had really amazing mentors around me, not at Goddard, unfortunately. I didn't have a great time there, but around me at other places. So I went to Space Telescope, which is the place which basically runs and schedules Hubble time. And it now runs all of JWST operations. So I was kind of able to be really in the thick of it with the work that I was doing, which I found incredibly, incredibly helpful. And with each of my postdocs, I basically went, right, the first year is mine. I'm just doing science. That's all I'm doing. I'm not going to think about anything else. This is my time to just get on and do the stuff that I'm here for. And then in the second year, that's when I'll think about, right, now I'm going to be spending quite a significant amount of my time applying for jobs, applying for postdocs. I applied for my first faculty job in that second year of my postdoc. Wow. And then... Yeah, and I just kept applying for things, kept applying for fellowships in the UK and in the US. I kept applying for faculty jobs and I actually managed to get one, which was just very strange and weird and very quick. And I was very, very, very lucky that they were happy to hire somebody young and pretty much just out their PhD. I was I was four years out of my PhD at that time. And, and then I started in 2020 and, um, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> So I had to learn either quickly or slowly. I'm not actually sure in comparison exactly like what the timeline was, but I, I either had to learn quickly or slower than normal how to do the job, which involved creating classes online for the first time and working out how to use Zoom and seeing the demise of Skype, which was the only thing that we'd used before that. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's just, it's been very, very different. I have not done any of my own work since then. So I started in February 2020. And then I started teaching in September 2020. And the last paper I published as the first author was in June 2020. And it is now May 2023. Wow. And as a postdoc, I was publishing, like I was just going like crazy. I was just doing work, 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 work. And I just have, haven't because that's now my job is to make sure that my postdocs and my PhD students are doing that. You still must have some influence on what science gets done in your group. Oh, yeah. I guess, is that is that a, a rewarding? How's that different from doing it yourself? It's completely different, but it's excellent because you know what? They're so much better than I am. <laughs> they are just so much better at this than I am. And I know what things to say. I know what things I've had to learn from. So that experience of just really working from the ground up with Hubble has just been amazing to just go, right, no, that's, you know, we're looking in the wrong place. I've seen this before. I mean, I can look at something that they've done, you know, fitting a transit light curve or something, and I can go, oh, you've got your A over R star wrong. Because I can just see those things 
And it's just from experience going, I can look at that spectrum and go, oh, wow, that's awesome. That's CO2. I can't believe we found it. And they're like, what are you looking at? I'm like, the bump, the big bump. And they're like, how do you know? I'm like, I know. And it's just like all of these little things that are really exciting. And I can get excited on their behalf. But there is absolutely nothing like doing a data analysis yourself and finding a result. And yesterday, for the first time, I did that. And it was awesome. And I felt so amazing. But I would not have been able to do that if my PhD student, Lily Alderson, and my postdoc, David Grant, had not given me the code in which to modify to do that. I made like minor modifications, played around with the systematic model, so the way that we would correct the data, and I got my spectrum out. But they did all the legwork on that. I just got to play around with the kind of let me tune the GUI parameters kind of style of things. Just know which line to... Oh, I just... I'm only changing like four lines here. That's fine. But it still felt amazing doing that. So I don't know. I'm looking forward to the next five years I get to actually dig down and do some data analysis again and and play around with things. So I am very much looking forward to kind of going back and being kind of mucking in with them. Well, and that's because things are maybe quieten down a little bit with teaching you've established you know the courses the modules that you need or new new projects coming up jwst data coming down yeah i mean i was really really lucky i i mean so hugh the applications don't stop once you get a faculty position yeah Uh, they continue and they get worse because the stakes get higher um Because the money just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Now, I was super lucky. I got awarded a European Research Council grant for the next five years to continue basically working on JWST data with the ultimate goal. May I I push back on on the luck element of this? I understand there's a timing and there's some serendipity, but you are excellent at this. And there's a lot of hard work invested as well. So, so, you know, uh, I can can hear it hitting my ear a little bit at an angle because I recognise how much work you've done and the excellent research that you've performed in the past. So let's just very... I'm going to emphasise that on Hannah's behalf here, but then she can continue saying how lucky she was. (laughs) It's fun stuff. Everybody loves a planet. It's not a difficult sell. Yeah, but you did it well, and that's the key. It's the planets themselves. They're the key. They're the ones that are just these beautiful, absolutely filled with data, just ready for us to harvest. And I'm just like, point the telescope at it do it we've got this but i I mean the ultimate goal is to create this three-dimensional map of a giant exoplanet based on the data alone so right now we can create these maps and there's amazing science that's being done by people for doing simulations where you are putting in all the physics and all the chemistry that you know and you see what happens but that's the land of make-believe. I want to prove it. I want the data to say what it is actually doing. And this is going to kind of allow me the time to do that and spend it really detailed on these data sets that we're getting from JWST. So I want the data to start telling its story and see whether the reality of nature is what we think it should be. I'm going to guess no, by the way. (laughs) It's your hypothesis right now. 
it's not. No, it's, it's always going to be more surprising, and that's a great thing. Right? Yeah, that's the great thing. My hypothesis is that nature's a little bit of a, a trickster and likes to likes to just play around with things and go, well, actually. Going to mm, make it difficult. Going to make it difficult. Just to make things difficult. Yeah. I mean, we like a challenge. We don't need to get to the answer too quickly. Yeah. Exocast. Andrew, you just started as a faculty last year, right? Uh, it was actually October 2021. I had, to, ah. I had to think about it when you were mentioning when you started. Right? Like when you started. Yeah. But, you know, that first journey, mm. how was it for you? And, and how did that kind of affect or, or kind of play into the science that you're doing? Yeah, it was, um, it was a tricky time to start, I think, in general. You know, post-pandemic, things were not great in the academia sector, which they probably still aren't, still recovering a little bit. And generally at Birkbeck as well. I'm sure they, they won't mind, or they probably will mind me mentioning it, but <laughs> it's kind of chaotic when I arrived. There was a, a restructure going on in the department. There was a fiscal black hole to be filled with lots of managerial speak uh, going around and applications for your job. So a very stressful time to be a new member of staff that's, that's just come into that environment. Yeah. One, trying to navigate you know, setting up a new course, which is what I'll probably talk about in a second, and then two, trying to navigate the changes that were going on around me at the same time. While also having been unemployed for eight months and maybe struggling a little bit with my mental health during that time, it was a very, you know, mm. zero to a hundred, very intense. And going into a department with 11 people when I started on the Friday and seven people when I got back to work on the next Monday because a number of people had taken early retirement. So the, oh, wow. the department was, was in flux and still arguably is. Yeah. So I must admit, you know, external factors is making that a little bit more difficult. But I did take my first module last year, Introduction to Astrobiology. Some of the students probably listening right here, so I'll be careful what I say. They're all a good bunch. <laughs> so I inherited that from uh, from Professor Ian Crawford, who Hugh knows, as he took this course uh, many, many years ago now. Yeah, and Ian's been running this for 20 odd years, so he's stepping into very big shoes. I had to change a, change a few things, uh, heavy on the text and lots of lots of slides of just text. So, uh, you know, some, some learning difficulties, uh, sorry, not learning difficulties, some um, ways of pre presenting that were somewhat different. So, yeah, adapting to that. But really the challenge that I've been facing is establishing a new master's degree in astrobiology. So this is going to be the, the first one in England. I can't say the first one in the UK because Edinburgh beat us to it by a few months. Um, <laughs> that's fine. It's um, it, kind of a different focus and, and the folks at Edinburgh are friends and they, they're doing they're doing good work up there. But as Charles Cockall said, who's the professor up there, that we now have the highest concentration of astrobiology postgraduate degrees, probably in the galaxy, um, as far as we know, <laughs> which I think is fair <laughs> until until Hannah finds us some, some proof otherwise, which is pretty great. It's good to know that we are kind of pioneering in this area. And I think Birkbeck's well placed for that, because as I said, Ian's been doing this in our department for 20 odd years. So it is the natural extension. And it was why I was hired. But um, again, trying to design a master's course whilst the department was being restructured, whilst the schools were being merged, whilst I might have lost my job. It was difficult, but it's come together mm. quite well. We have a good number of applications and that's starting in November this year. Nice. So I'm um, really excited about that, that it's, uh, that's come together so well. But as Hannah said, you know, it's, I think the biggest learning curve for me has been supporting my students. So I've got you know, eight odd undergraduates and master's students and um, two PhD students, uh, one full-time, Hannah's just started with me, very excited about that, and a part-time PhD student as well. And 
yeah, it's definitely a learning curve to learn how to support someone doing a PhD. I remember just about how to do one myself. Um, I just about scraped through it. But then it's very diff difficult to take a step back and, and help someone to hit those goals themselves without getting too prescriptive, without, you know, wanting to be a helicopter supervisor. Some things to learn, yeah. um, especially when you then also have a student who is on the part time side. The timing is very different. Their focus is very different. They're coming back to academia almost like just out of pure interest, which, again, is a very different motivation uh, it's not to say that we're in this for the money we're certainly not or for the you know the career progression which you're certainly probably not but to have someone who identifies like I'm just in this because I find this fascinating is the ideal student arguably to have but then to figure out how that part-time timing is going to work and, and the scaling it's, it's a tricky it's a learning curve for me for sure yeah I when I first started I had a, a part-time student who unfortunately unfortunately fortunately their business like really took off Fortunately for them. So they ended up <laughs> not actually having time to do the PhD anymore. So they, they had to, to stop. But for, for about a year, I was working with a part-time PhD student who, again, you know, they had an established business. They were very successful at what they did and, and uh, wanted to just learn. And they're just excited about everything. And I think that that was really, that's a really great driving force. And I think that's a driving force that all of us have, is that we're just excited to to learn and discover new things about, about these worlds. I mean, Hugh, is that, you know, what would you say is your kind of motivation behind what you do? Why do you do that particular subject? I mean, for me, I just, it's the thrill you get, right? I mean, they're probably the same thrill that you had when you looked at that spectrum and you were the first person to look at it, right? It's that buzz when you're discovering something new about the universe, right? That is something I don't want to let go of as well, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you lose that. I don't think that's ever gone. Okay. I don't think it can. I think the the way in which you get that might change a little bit. It might morph and, and you get excited for other people making that discovery. And that's a different feeling, but it's also, you know, actually it's a little bit stronger in some ways, but the opportunity to kind of just spend some time and actually kind of find something is second to none. And I think that is exactly what we're doing. There are a lot of things where you're just like, for a long time, it's not, it's not fun. You are busy doing everything but that, or you have spent you know, weeks and weeks and weeks working on this and there, there is a null result. There is something that basically says this doesn't match your hypothesis. There isn't a planet there or this planet doesn't have an atmosphere or, you know, no life cannot exist in this environment. You know, there's always that kind of potential. But the ultimate kind of feeling of when something works the way that you, you think it should or it matches logic or you learn something new from it, that doesn't ever go away. I think what I've also picking up a little trend here and everything that we've discussed is this is a collaborative effort, isn't it? Right. Maybe in the past or maybe some folks might still think of like that lone scientist in their lab late at night making that discovery, just like Hannah was maybe you know, yesterday with her light curve. But it's generally not the case, is it? Right. You have that light curve because of hundreds of people's work. Exactly. Up and that there's something you know, very rewarding about, you know, humans coming together for knowledge, to, to acquire knowledge about the universe, especially if things are, are tough elsewhere, outside in society or even in, you know, your personal life. And you can focus on something of a bigger picture, something of a perspective that's outside of ourselves, right? That we're all working together for some, for, as you said, to find out something new about the universe. And that is very uniting, very, very rewarding. 
And we've been seeing that throughout the different communities. I mean, uh, Tess has been doing this beautifully, uh, and Hugh can comment on this a bit more, but the community sharing of information as to, you know, here's the set of different stars that we're looking at and who's going to do follow up on them. And, and how does that work? How does that community aspect in the discovery space work? Yeah, it's quite interesting because I think people come in from the outside and they look at it and they say, well, this seems horrible. There's no proprietary period. There's no, you know, everyone can look at the same data immediately. The proprietary period for folks who don't know you. So the data, yeah, so so the data isn't held by the people who propose the targets. It's You can propose to, to have tests look at something with higher cadence, but that data will be public a week after test observes. And I think the reason it works is because well, for one, it's it's a little bit less high impact, I guess. You know, not like JWST, where there is only so many spectra that it will ever get for planets, and so getting one is quite a, a key thing. And you want, if you are the one that that proposes for it, that's a lot of effort as well. And so you obviously want some time to look at that data, and I completely understand that, and I think that should be the case because, I mean, and it's a different kettle of fish, really. So I were looking at changing it. Yeah, exactly. But um, they're not changing it. <laughs> okay, good. That's good. Good to hear. But yeah, with TESS, how it works is basically every astronomer is, is signs a form that says that, that you will collaborate, that you will include anyone who contributes data to a particular planet in your paper that you're writing, that you will include the people who contributed to get tests launched and the data from tests down, down to the ground, and that if two people are writing the same paper that you coordinate like on release times or you coordinate on, okay, you, you can lead this one and, and I'll lead this next shared target so um, and that's all done through this uh, test follow-up program which is led by Dave Latham and it, it has worked extremely well and looking at that compared to things like K2 which was a little bit more competitive and even looking at how KOPS works I think that the test system where all the data is immediately public and then you can just agree afterwards on who leads what and who contributes what I think that's yeah that's a real positive part of, of the test mission certainly. Yeah, definitely. And and we've been seeing kind of different aspects of that in the characterization side of things. But as you said, it, it is very, very different space. So we don't get proprietary time on these telescopes. We have to spend time often, you know, a year before it gets on the telescope even, there is a call for proposals and you have to write a science case. And that science case is anywhere from a minimum of eight pages to, to 12 pages and you are writing, I want to test this hypothesis and this is how I'm going to do it. And these observations are designed in a specific way to do so. And you have to plan them. You have to simulate the observations. You have to simulate what you expect to find and, and, and explain what would happen if you didn't find that. And that whole process is, is a really long and intense process. So you get the call for proposals maybe two months before the deadline. But that's not how scientists work because we are human and we suck. So the week before that deadline, you are working. Twitter is mad. <laughs> so many stressed people. It's absolutely insane. You're working 12, 15 hour days just solidly trying to get these proposals together. I mean, you put in somewhere between 15 and 25 proposals. Some people even put in even more proposals and you get maybe two or three at most, if you're lucky, because all of these proposals then go to attack, which will happen months, months later. We submitted our proposals for JWST's third year of observations. So we're in its first year of observations now. 
we have already had to submit... Oh, no, sorry, the second year of observations. We are in the first year. We had to submit the second year of observations back in January. And those have only just been finished, reviewed by a panel of experts. And we will hear about the results from those next week or in the next couple of weeks. And then those will need to be scheduled on the telescope from October. And then we're going to be proposing for the third year of JWST time next November, December time. And you have to, these plans for the the future, if you're a PhD student and you get awarded JWST time, it will be about a year before you get that time, which means you're a year further into your PhD, which means you've got only a limited amount of time to do analysis and publish the paper on it before you're pretty much done in the UK. You get three and a half years. So the timelines are just stretched out and then compressed as soon as you get that data and with JWST what we're seeing is that as soon as you get that data you are analyzing that data you have to just drop everything you have to look at that data you have to get the result you have to you know get someone to compare it Um, one of the really nice things we're seeing is that actually you won't see a published result where just one person has done an analysis we want to see three independent data analysis pipelines applied to this data set to show there's consistency across that but there's this really really kind of like hurry up and wait method in the characterization side of things so you need that protected time on something that you have spent a significant amount of your energy putting together and and proposing for and I find that is helpful in some ways but it also sets a time limit you have to get it analysed by this this date. So uh, it really, really depends. I'm on a lot of programmes which are open, which means that the data is immediately open to everybody to analyse. And please feel free. It's um, not as easy as it looks. <laughs> so go for it. I actually have been able to, with the luxury of my position, and this is purely from the luxury of the fact that I have a permanent job and that I'm doing all right, I can go you know what, go for it. I can't anymore. I just don't have the energy to to fight it. If you are going to do it, that's fine. I'll come along later and do it better. <laughs> don't mind. <laughs> really don't mind. But, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to really look at some of the smallest signals, some of the very smallest signals, and understand a brand new telescope that is on sky and that's going to take us time and i think some of the things that we've published this year on jwst data we will be able to really quite nicely go back in two three years and go right lessons we've learned we're reanalyzing it and we're going to show either it's the same or there's some changes and the effects those changes have and that's really exciting for me because i'm a bit of a nerd and I like to understand how the telescope works and I want to make it better and I like the scientific process of going yeah but what if we tried to do the same thing again and if we get a different result what does that mean so I'm actually looking forward to being able to take a load of the data that we've already looked at and go okay but what if we did this how does that change what we're measuring and our understanding. So there is a big difference there. And we saw, we we tried, 
with the exoplanet characterization community to work together and we did and it was really successful and it's still ongoing we've got tons of stuff coming this was through the jwc ers program there were two for exoplanets one for direct imaging and one for transiting exoplanets which i am part of and the data has been unbelievable. The community has been amazing. We've got 300 astronomers all working together, which in a very competitive field that is unheard of. And we're learning new things all the time and we're sharing that. And I think that's one of the nicest things that I've seen is the community has evolved. It's a young community. Exoplanets is brand new. In the scale of science, it's absolutely brand new. And it's a young community. It's a dynamic community and... We just want to know what's going on out there and ask how many different ways can we prove it. So I think we're starting to see movement towards that more open side of science, but it's difficult when the academic structure, the systemic issues impose themselves on that type of attitude. Yeah. But I'm curious because I know about what Hugh does and I know about what I do, I hope. But Andrew, I'm still like, what is it like in the world of astrobiology? We've got a few minutes left. I just want to kind of get a good understanding. You're coming at it from the modeling side of things, but you do field work as well. And how does how do you and the community that you work in apply yourselves to these really open questions? Yeah, it's a good question. So me, me personally, I was listening to the way that, you know, the observations were being done and the characterizations were being uh, analyzed and reanalyzed. I'm seeing a lot of parallels, right? Maybe we don't have the same time limit apart from like, I want to publish this as soon as possible in case someone else does. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, it's usually a couple of papers down the line, a couple of years down the line, once Hugh's done his job and Hannah's done her job. And then so my community, you know, gets hold of the paper or gets hold of the, you know, the, the processed data that allows us to plug some of that stuff into our simulations, which are generally Earth system models developed for the Earth in most cases, many of them that I use developed for the Earth, Earth legacy models, used to predict contemporary climate change based on land use issues, you know, modifying these extremely complex legacy codes from 50 years ago, um, essentially to, in the way that Hannah says, see if we can get the same answer coming at it from a different, a number of different routes. And I think there's definitely been a, a movement in our community for more collaborative stuff. I'm thinking of, for example, the, the TIE program, which is the Trappist Habitable Atmosphere Intercomparison program, which was based very much on the CMIP program from the IPCC. So this is the Climate Model Intercomparison program. So what happens there is, you know, the IPCC will, will task scientists with simulating the, the, the future projections of the Earth's climate based on data. They will do that independently and then they will compare it in a paper and see that all the models that we're using from the UK to Japan to the US roughly say the same thing. If they don't, why? We can look a bit more into that. And the exoplanet community has taken this, or the exoplanet climatology community has taken this approach and looking at all the models that we use from 3D complex GCMs like CSM2, which I use quite a bit. There's a UK model, the Hadley model, which is great. Unified model here as well. A number of different models that have been developed for different purposes to try and to normalize those right to simulate our planetary atmospheres our planetary climates same data different models see what comes out and as hannah says right it comes down to tuning things parameter studies parameter space studies we're at the stage where for small planets i'll admit we, we don't have enough data to go on to make robust uh, robust conclusions uh, at this stage and that's fine but we're doing some groundwork for stuff that's that's 
to come later. And I do confidently believe that we're learning more about general planets, right, about how planets work as, as a system, which gives us a huge amount of evidence, you know, for, for supporting what we see on the Earth, right, based on Earth observations, which we don't understand very well as it is. So day to day, I guess, it's there's a lot of climate modelling, right? There's a lot of simulations. There's a lot of applying for support to have large simulation ensembles running on supercomputers, a lot of coding, right? Uh, and this is just my general area. So astrobiology, as you mentioned, very broad, very broad area from biology to philosophy. So this is a very small part of it. But you could be a biologist spending every day in a lab looking at you know the origin of life, understanding how extremophiles can adapt to different environments. That's astrobiology there. You could be on the ISS, just one S, <laughs> um, studying microgravity experiments. You could be down in a lab somewhere in, in Scotland or oh, in a mine somewhere in Scandinavia. Uh, astrobiology is basically a little bit of everywhere. So it's very difficult to summarize what astrobiologists do, but it's pretty much what any what, what most scientists do, I would say. Me personally, it does feel like somewhat I'm a little bit disconnected from the observations, I guess, from the reality of the situation. But as we often talked about on the show, and maybe Hannah hinted before we start recording, this is the stuff that, that kind of people want um this is the this is the end goal right where people can say okay is this planet habitable which is very evocative and it you know it speaks to our inherent need to want to understand the universe and if there's life out there so it's very i'm very privileged to be in that in that realm and i think we have therefore a responsibility to do it as well as we can as robustly as we can and acknowledge the limitations when when they're there because i've always said that i'm really worried that the announcement of the first really habitable planet will be made to an empty room because people hear this phrase being banded around all the time. I'm not great at it myself, I admit that now. And um, yeah, people can get a little bit bored of, of these conf- constant conversations, which actually in- encapsulate very, very complex topics that are not settled yet. What the term habitability means or how it's expressed, we're not there, we're not there yet. So we're kind of at the stage where we're a little bit too early to, you know, explore small, you know, transiting or, or spectroscopically, you know, characterized planets at this stage. But, uh, you know, maybe a little bit... Small cold. Small cold. A Sorry, a bit cold by Hannah's standards. Well, anything less than 400 Kelvin, right? <laughs> Freezing cold. Um, yeah, 800 Kelvin. <laughs> I forget what our limit for exocarbon 800's good. We've got, we've got 800. We've got 800. So I'm waffling now, but I'll, uh, I'll stop it there and say, you know, I'm, again, privileged, hopefully collaborative. And interdisciplinary is the way we have to approach astrobiology, which is how we designed our postgraduate degree, as, as interdisciplinary as possible. A little bit of chemistry, a little bit of biology, a little bit of maths, a little bit of physics, uh, you know. Sounds absolutely perfect, to be honest. Yeah. I thought so. Tried to cram as much chemistry and physics and astro and earth sciences into as many things as I possibly can because um, maybe not biology, so I'm lacking in that one. That's fair. (laughs) Well, fortunately, you know, I talked about the restructures. Fortunately, one of the good things is that our department is merging with biology department at Birkbeck to form the School of Natural Sciences, which I'm actually quite excited about. I think it will be a boon for my teaching because I won't have to teach as much biology, which is great. I can put away my A-level textbooks (laughs) (laughs) and uh, not have to try and remember the difference, you know, between, you know, various very similar sounding, you know, biological molecules (laughs) as as clearly as I I do. So, So I want us to to wrap up a little bit and I think what I'd like to hear is one piece of advice and one piece of your science that you are most excited about so Hugh have you got anything for us I mean I think in terms of advice you mentioned it earlier a little bit about how you thought that your PhD was well timed right that you came out of a PhD a year before this new telescope was going to completely revolutionize the field that you had spent four years studying. I think I also had a little bit of luck in that sense where 
when I was doing my PhD, I was studying like single transits and long period planets. And with K2 and with Kepler, that wasn't really useful. But as soon as TESS came along, I was in the right place to really make the most of that because these were around bright stars and we could go, we could actually go and characterize these, which we couldn't do before. And, and that really helped me. So I would think for advice, it would be try to, I mean, you obviously can't predict 100%, right? You can't be a savant to predict what's happening in five, 10 years time. But you can look at what the money is going to, what the missions are going to be. And you can kind of use that to make a choice about which direction to go in, such that in the near future, you're in a good place to profit from the data that comes out or, you know, the new mission that's about to be launched. I think that would be my advice. And I'm trying to follow myself, but uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. And then in terms of the science I'm most excited about, so that's my own science, right? Yeah, your own science. So we, we submitted a paper to Nature yesterday. Which Congrats. is uh, a big one. Which is, yeah, which, I mean, we'll see. It might get rejected. but um, And I, it's the same system that I submitted to James Webb Cycle 2 for atmospheric observations. So I'm really excited about that system. Am I not allowed to say that? Well, the results will come out soon. I submitted. So no, I suppose you are now because it's gone through the tech. So yeah, you can, yeah, I think you it's can give us as much information as you want. Well, I can't tell you what the system is, but um, I can just tell you it's the brightest uh, system of six transiting planets on the sky. And it's a resonant chain of small super Earths and, and mini Neptunes. And it's, yeah, that's going to be, Ooh. it's like TRAPPIST-1. If TRAPPIST-1 was formed of like gassy 10 Earth mass mini Neptunes, basically. Yes, I want that system. Yes, I want the system. I want everything about that system. Yeah, it sounds like we could learn a lot from it. <laughs> yeah, good luck here. I mean, I want to submit Cycle, cycle 3 as well. So We'll be competing, maybe. Lovely. What about you, Andrew? Well, I'd say for me, a good piece of advice, probably for all of our fields, is learn to code, right? That's probably mm, something that yeah. I should have focused maybe when I was in A-levels. Uh, I did I'd kind of rejected it a little bit, not thinking it was super necessary. But no, uh, learning to code, Python is going to be the way to go. That's a good piece of advice. And obviously, what I think what you said, I was going to emphasize anyway. There is an element of being in the right place at the right time, but there is also an element of, you know, seeing seeing where the field is going. This is a long cadence field, right? We have missions mm. that are now leaving uh, the Earth to visit the outer solar system in, you know, 10 years' time. So you, you can you can have a little, bit, a little idea about where things are going and, and focus on stuff. In terms of the stuff I'm most proud of, I, I guess maybe... I wouldn't say I certainly came up with the idea, but at least re-emphasizing the importance of studying planets uh, through time and connecting habitability in space and time and very simple models that I, I developed through my PhD, I, I think helped me to get a little perspective on Earth history and hopefully just introduced into the community that we're getting planets in a snapshot here at a time where, you know, Maybe they've had a billion years of, of habitable conditions, in quotes, or maybe, you know, a million years of habitable conditions, in quotes, and gives us a little perspective as to where the Earth might be in terms of our habitable period and, and understanding how planets change over time, uh, I guess, would be the thing I'm most proud of. But Hanno, which one do you pick of your many accolades, of your many, how many nature papers have you got? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's the, I don't know. She's actually, ca she, can't, she doesn't know. They're anymore. the worst. <laughs> they, okay. They are the, the most prestigious mm. with air quotes, but they are the worst papers to write in absolutely every way. Well, like very prescriptive and, and. It's very yeah. prescriptive. You don't get to put that beautiful science and those nuances and that just immense detail as to the things that you actually have to do with these data sets to get to that big, headline result that people want and i love the detail i love the like picky little strange bits in the data that mean something so yeah okay 
Anyway, advice. <laughs> I actually want to kind of deviate away from the science academic side and just be like, don't do what me and Andrew did. Buy that couch that you want. Yeah. Even if you're do there it. for a month, I agree. just do it. I agree. Because it doesn't, you're just putting things on hold for absolutely nothing. There is never a yeah. good time for Perfect. anything in your life. So just do it. I waited way too long to do a ton of things. And that's just silly. It's silliness. So don't be silly, is my advice. Three months of being uncomfortable, where I didn't have to be. <laughs> don't be silly. Great advice. So that's my advice. But the science that I, I am actually most excited about is we've got all of this amazing infrared JWST data. But what's really, really key for us to understand these planets is that combined with the UV optical data from the Hubble Space Telescope, which can tell us about the scattering properties of clouds in the atmosphere. It can tell us about different materials and how they'll be affecting the dynamics and the temperature structure of that atmosphere that are going to be really hard for us to measure with JWST. It's possible, but it's going to be much harder to do. And I'm really excited about tying these two amazing missions together and bringing all of that information to give us a foundation for what we can actually learn about the chemistry and the dynamics of these, these really strange alien worlds we all love so much. So I'm looking forward to the partnership between our telescopes and, and what that can bring us in the future. I can't think of a, a better placed person to do that, given your experience with both of those instruments. So Do you very much enjoy it? <laughs> Not going to lie. Not going to lie. Today's a good day. I'm feeling great about this. Good day to record, Axel. So, yeah, thanks for joining us to hear a little bit about what us as, as hosts have been up to in the last few years. Don't forget to look out for our news episode, which should come out later this month. And let us know what you think about the show through Twitter at exo underscore cast. And I just set up a Mastodon account on mastodon.social or on our website, exocast.org, where you can find all our previous shows. You can also help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash Exocast. Each coffee is $4 and every donation over $15 will get a shout out on the show. So this month and potentially every month, we have to give that shout out now to MR Aroid or MR Aroid uh, for their donations. So uh, a big thank you to them and also to all of our previous donors as well. You can get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, so t-shirts, stickers and more at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne, a KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Dr. Hannah Wakeford, lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. Find out more on exocast.org.